All right, you may be seated. Welcome to our service this morning. We're in the book of Hebrews. Uh, this is our fourth sermon from, from a series we're doing in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is one of the hardest books uh, to deliver in all of the New Testament because you're not Hebrews. And that's why it's the most complicated. Uh, it's talking about things related to Ju- Judaism and, and the worship of the Jews and, and the culture of the Jews from the time of the first century. And uh, if I had to build a bridge this morning from here to the Jews in the first century, that's a big bridge to build. And uh, there's a lot of things about their culture and their life that don't connect with us at all. Now you get to the middle of the book of Hebrews, really about chapter, well really one, but let's just say three, all the way to chapter 10 is about one subject. It's about Jesus Christ being our high priest, being a better high priest. And when you come to our modern age here in the Western world, in, in, the, in the land of the free, in the home of the brave, when we hear this language, I'm asking myself questions like, why do I care that these ancient people needed a high priest? I mean, I have a cell phone, I fly through the air, uh, I live in the age of instant information. Who needs a high priest? I mean, I have Syria, I have Alexa. If I need something, I ask, and, and they deliver. You know what I'm saying? And, and Prime will put it on the doorstep tomorrow. It'll be there. Uh, they needed a high priest. They had needs. But I live in a different world, and I'm so self-sufficient that I often feel like I don't need a high priest in my life. Sure, I need Jesus for salvation, because nobody could do that. But now that I've got salvation, I'm good with God And I just live my own life the way I want to live it and do whatever I want to do. And then if I get in a pickle, I'll call God up and I'll say, hey, God, I'm in trouble. Now I need you in my life. But unless I'm in dire straits, not the band, unless I'm in dire circumstances, I'll I'll live my life without really fellowship with God, without understanding I need, need a high priest. And So let's just talk this out a little bit this morning. When we hear the words high priest, it sounds foreign to us. It sounds archaic to us. It sounds of another culture and another time. Because Western culture, your culture in particular, in the era in which you live, is super casual. I mean, the, 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 the era of formality has left America completely. Uh, again, I, I'll go back to my, my professional career, we were suits and ties. There was no such thing as casual dress in the workplace. And, and somewhere in the 90s, I remember a memo came through the corporate office and it said, we're going to do blue jeans on Fridays, but only if you pay $5 and get the sticker, blue jeans for babies. Remember that? Now, there's old stuff here. It's the only way they'd let you wear casual clothes to, to the office. If you showed up casual, if you showed up this casually at work in a Fortune 500 company, you were sent home by the principal to go change clothes. Isn't that crazy? America has become super casual and super laid back in our culture. We don't like stuffy. We don't like ceremony. We do not like high church. We do not like hierarchical religion. We do not like this priesthood stuff. Uh, We don't have a place in our lives. So who needs a priest anyway is the question. Uh, our philosophy uh, in America is it's just God and me. Americans don't even need the church anymore. It's just God and me. We're good. And uh, if we need any more help, we'll, we'll call the rest of you. I don't need to organize religion. But let me ask you some theological questions. Let me ask you some, some religious questions. 
how do you get into a relationship with God? I'm asking the, 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 the modern, how, how do you do, how does that work out for you? It's just God, me, and we're good. Okay, how do you get into a relationship with God so that it is just God in you? Talk to me, you know, think that through for a minute. Let, let me ask it to you in a more structured way. Who in your life has been approved by God to bring you into a relationship with him? Who in your life has been approved by God, not by you, by God, to bring you into a relationship with God? You say, well, it's just God meet. No, it doesn't work that way. Who in your life has God sent into your life that's approved by Almighty God to take your hand and put your hand into the hand of God? You say, well, I'll just reach up to God. It doesn't work that way. I've read the Bible. It doesn't work that way. So who in your life has God approved to take your hand and put it into the hand of Almighty God? Who is that high priest in your life? Now let me give you a bit of a history lesson. Because we run along for several chapters in the book of Genesis before this idea of high priest is introduced and I'll tell you the first time it shows up let me give you a quick history lesson Abraham is blessed by God y'all know that God said Abraham I will bless you and I'm going to overflow your cup so that you're not just blessed by God you can pour out blessings to other you you become a blessing to everyone you meet matter of fact he said I'm going to bring the Messiah through your bloodline and all it through you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed with the Savior is what he was talking about but Abraham was super rich now this is what I want you to see Bible's full of super rich people Abraham was super rich and uh, kings knew Abraham Abraham knew kings he and he was a super rich guy and in these days there were there were kings so every city had a king kind of like uh, Camelot and, and, and those days there was a, a king over a city and maybe several cities were allied together but there were little regional kings and city kings and the Tower of Babel has fallen and Nimrod has done his thing and the nations have been scattered but from Babylon the most powerful king still exists you know that Egypt's uh, uh, becoming a power down in the, in the south but in Mesopotamia is where it all started in the land of the two rivers the Tigris and Euphrates. And Abraham came out from there westward to Israel. God said, everywhere you walk, it'll be yours for your possession, for your family. And God blessed him. And they had cattle and they had, man, they just overflowed with stuff. Eventually, Abraham said to his nephew Lot, who's traveling with him, we have too much stuff. I mean, we are like a small city here. And we have too much stuff and too many cows. We can't get them to water. We can't get grazing rights. Uh, and there's not enough grass here for all the stuff that we've got, sheep and cattle and oxen and all this stuff. Lot, you and I need to separate. You, you need to start your own subdivision, and I need to start my own city, and we need to split apart. And so Lot said, I'll go over the mountain range down to this beautiful valley where Sodom and Gomorrah and Zoar and their five cities of the plain at the, at the tip of what was the, now the Dead Sea. Abraham said, I'll stay over here in more Israel proper. You go over the mountain. And they split apart, just like you would say your relatives live in East Texas and you live here in the Metroplex. They split apart just, just some hours from each other where the land could sustain all of their possessions. <clears throat> but then one day, four, city, four kings from Mesopotamia, famous kings, 
kings, name of Hammurabi, some of the famous kings of the ancient world, four kings invaded the valley of the, of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea. And when those four kings came over the mountain range of what now is Jordan and into Israel, they invaded those five cities of the Dead Sea. Lot was living there, Abraham's nephew and his wife and their daughters and their, their possessions. And those four kings conquered the five kings of the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities were enslaved. They were kidnapped and all the cities were looted. And so now this army is moving back over the mountain range having kidnapped thousands of people and they have all the spoils of war from five cities that have been looted and they're carrying it back over to Babylon, back over the mountain range. Someone escaped from the battle and rode like the wind to Abraham and they said, Abraham, Abraham... Lot's been kidnapped, your nephew's been kidnapped, your niece, your, everyone's kidnapped, uh, the, the, and told them all about the invasion. Abraham, within minutes, it appears in the scripture, has called a couple of his buddies, and they have whipped a militia together, and they saddle up like a posse going after a bank robber, and they ride, uh, Abraham and his buddies ride on those four kings, those four invading kings who are retreating. Now, when you got women and children and treasure and you can't move very fast, Abraham and his guys are spurring their horses and they chase them in a cloud of dust and they catch them at Damascus, Syria, just north of Israel. And when they catch them, I'll just give you the sentence, in history books this is called the slaughter of the kings. So I guess you know what's about to happen, right? Abraham and his buddies, Abraham and his militia, wipe those guys clean. I mean, just whip the devil out of them. They liberate Lot and the five kings of the plain. They liberate everyone who's been kidnapped. They have all the spoils of war from five cities. There's a bunch of stuff. In a massive caravan of people, now they liberated, they all march. You you see these pictures of these few thousand people marching from South America up to our border. Now, that's small potatoes compared to this. I want you to imagine the inhabitants of five cities being liberated, now marching back towards Israel, back towards Jerusalem. Here's what it says in the book of Genesis, chapter 14. As they approached Jerusalem, then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, it's Jerusalem, in case you don't know, Jerusalem, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the Most High God. And Melchizedek blessed him, and here's what Melchizedek said. When Abraham came, Melchizedek went out and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abraham said to his crew, boys, this is where we give the offering. The priest said, blessed are you because God has delivered you. And bless, I'm going to take your hand and God's hand and I'll just put the two of you together in worship right now. Blessed are you because God has delivered you from battle. Blessed are you because you have delivered your servant from harm and you've liberated all of these people and brought them safely back when they could be enslaved in another country. Imagine that. Imagine they went from abject fear and hopelessness to suddenly liberation and liberty and freedom and the priest helps them worship and Abraham gave 
a tithe of all. Abraham said, let's give a tithe. They took all the spoil from the five cities. Abraham said, I won't take a dime of that personally. But what we do need to do is we need to tithe. We need to give as an act of worship. And they took all the spoil and they separated out one-tenth. The word tithe means one-tenth. It's literally, it means tenth. That's all the word means. He took a tenth of the spoils of war and they gave it to Melchizedek at the place of worship in Jerusalem. Now, when we talk about giving, here are the questions that we ask in the modern era. How much? This is the first question usually that I'm asked. How much shall I give? Well, the definition of the word tithe in the Old Testament is tenth. Abraham's grandson, so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, when Jacob got right with God, you'll remember that Jacob wrestled with God, and he changed his name to Israel, and got delivered from Esau, and, and Jacob said, I give to the Lord one-tenth, a tithe of all of my possessions. 500 years later, uh, now, now listen, Abraham giving a tithe 500 years before the law. So this isn't a law thing. This is a thing that existed way, way before the law, the principle of giving in worship. But 500 years later, when Moses showed up in in Egypt and liberated the people from Egypt, and they went to Mount Sinai, God said, codify it. In other words, make it a part of the law. And it became a part of the law that when you came to worship, that you gave a a tithe, and you gave certain offerings. How much? Well, the New Covenant, which we live under, the New Testament, it's called the New Covenant, Uh, The new covenant that we live under speaks about giving as an act of worship to support the the ministry and the mission of Christ. And you can see how they did that in the book of Acts and beyond. Here's my question for you. In the New Testament, it says, just give as God lays on your heart. Well, a lot of Christians take that to mean, I can do whatever I want to do. In the Old Testament, the Jews gave 10%. Why would a Christian living under the new covenant give less than an unsaved person would give in the Old Testament? That's a question I want you to wrestle with. Why would a person living in the new covenant, in in the best scenario of all, give less than a person living under the old covenant? And the people in the old covenant weren't even born again believers. Now, I'm not saying Moses wasn't saved, but all of Israel tithed. All of Israel wasn't saved. But yet they all, they all tithe because it was a codified part of the law. The next question that people ask a lot is where shall we give that it's worship? In other words, in whose hands should we put the offerings? Now this is a huge question because America got really whacked on this thing. In the, it, we got crazy in America. And we started sending and giving what should have been an offering to God all over the place. We sent it down to Benny Hinn and over to Joel Osteen and down to John Hagee and over to Jerry Falwell. And we just were sending it all over the place. The answer to this question, in whose hands should I put the offering so that it is worship, uh, that depends on this. It needs to go to God's appointed place and to God's approved person. In Abraham's day... That God-approved place was Jerusalem, and that God-appointed person was Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God. Later, under Moses' leadership, they built a thing called the tabernacle, which became the central piece of worship for their culture. So in the days of Moses, the tabernacle was that place, and the high priest was that person. 
Hundreds of years later, under David and Solomon, they built the permanent temple in Jerusalem, which became the centerpiece of worship for the nation of Israel. And so Jerusalem and the temple became the place which you brought your, your, your tithe and you brought your offering. And the, the high priest there was the person who received it. You live on the other side of that in a thing called the New Covenant, the covenant of grace in the New Testament. Under the New Covenant... The church of Jesus Christ is the place because Jesus Christ, according to the book of Hebrews, has become the high priest over His church. When you give to His church and His church is carrying out the great commission to make disciples, you're giving where He wants you to give. Let me just ask you a quick series of questions and you can sort it out on your own. Do you hear the gospel of salvation here? Are people getting baptized here? Do you receive biblical teaching here? Are you learning here about God? Has your life been changed here as you've been exposed to the gospel and discipleship? Are disciples being made here? Just a few simple New Testament questions can help you sort out that this is the place you should be giving a portion of your wealth as an offering of worship to God. Now here's the next question. Can I, can I worship fully without giving lavishly? Now, I don't know if you can even imagine, I wish I could figure out, somebody could draw a picture of this, what the possessions of ten cities would look like stacked out on, a, on, on the plains outside of a city with thousands of people camped around all of this stuff. And Abraham walks out there and says, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, nine, ten, this is God's. One, two, three, four, and they start sorting through all of that stuff to pull a tenth of all the possessions of those cities into a giant pile. I mean, we're talking, we're talking a small city's worth of stuff here. Uh, was given as a gift, uh, 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 as an act of worship. Can we worship fully unless we have given lavishly? Now, I appreciate, and I'm not mocking you, I'm being sincere. I appreciate that you give to cancer research and to diabetes research and to the SPCA and to the Goodwill and to the Salvation Army. And, and, and listen, you have a wonderful heart. Listen, I think it's Christ that makes you have that kind of heart that you want to give to, to good causes. But don't be misled or confused. Do not equate giving to charitable causes as the same as giving and offering at God's appointed place, to God's appointed cause. Giving to a good foundation is a nice thing to do, and I think we should all do that. As God has blessed us, I think it's a good thing to do. But giving to a charitable cause is not the same as giving your weekly offering at worship in the house of God, which is His church, which is oversaw by the high priest Jesus Christ, which is on his mission to make disciples for his kingdom. I mean, I'm going to just be as clear as I can be. Rescuing kittens and baby seals is a very kind-hearted mission for you to undertake. But who is going to rescue people who are going out into eternity without Jesus Christ? Who is going to underwrite the mission of saving people from a Christless eternity? That's the mission of the church. Who's going to make disciples so that Christianity is here for your children and your grandchildren? Only the church is tasked with the mission of going and making disciples. Only this institution oversaw and approved by Christ our high priest said that this is that place. Jesus even said 
you, listen, uh, are not you more valuable than sparrows? Remember Jesus said, I feed the sparrows. But aren't people more valuable than pets? Aren't people more valuable than whales? Aren't people more valuable than trees? Sean Macbeth asked me a question about three or four years ago that's burned into my brain and I've never forgot it. We were having a conversation about the, the underwriting of the church and Sean said to me, Pastor, will Cornerstone be here in 20 years? Will there even be a Cornerstone for our kids? I mean, when you're gone and the next generation comes, will there even be a cornerstone? My answer to that question is that's entirely up to us. That's totally, entirely up to us. If you want there to be, there will be. And if you don't care, then there probably won't be. Uh, That's up to us to decide. That power has been put into our hands to see what we're going to do for the next generation. I can only speak for my family. We give as lavishly as we can give. I have no idea what we've given in the last 20 years, but it's in the hundreds of thousands for sure by now. We give as lavishly as we can give. We worship as lavishly as we can give. And I understand that many of you are young Christians. And I understand it takes time to grow in the grace of giving. And by the way, this is what Paul said in the New Testament. Grow in the grace of giving. If you're still giving 10%, you've been giving 10% for 20 years, you're not growing in the grace of giving. You're stagnant and flat. Okay? Grow well beyond what an unsaved person did in the Old Testament. That's what I'm saying to you. And I know many of you have never even been taught on tithing. We don't talk about much money too often here in a message, but just bear with me. I'll get back to the high priest in just a moment. Many of you are young and giving, I mean spiritually young, and giving is something that you're just now beginning to get traction with. What you need to know is in the Old Testament, you were not allowed to worship without an offering. I don't know if anybody ever told you this. They surely want to tell you this on TV. The Old Testament says this, let no male appear before me empty-handed. Direct quote from the Old Testament. Let no one appear before me empty-handed. If you came to the temple or the tabernacle to worship and you didn't bring an offering, they would turn you around. You said, money grubbers, no. They're saying to you, it's not worship unless you're giving lavishly. What do you have to give? You say, well, I'm not rich. Listen, I understand not rich because I've chewed the dirt of Asia and I've watched them put eggs in the offering plate. I've watched people come in with a bundle of radishes under one arm and a chicken with his feet tied in the other hand and come into church and give a chicken and a bundle of radishes. And and I've seen people pour a measure of rice into the offering. I mean, I've seen people give all kinds of ways. And what they were saying is, I don't have much, but this is what I do. I have been blessed by God, and here I give lavishly, and lavishly to them might be. I mean, my chicken laid 12 eggs. Here's a couple of them for the church. You know, I mean, it, literally, that's what, it, that's what it looks like. So I want to say it this way, not in a mocking way, but in a serious way. Do not tip Jesus Christ. Imagine if Jesus dealt with us this way. Oh, God, I'm in need. Blink, here's your, here's your quarter. Here's your little something. You don't want God to deal with you that way. You want God to pour blessing out upon you, which is what he talked about. It's his language. Then you should reciprocate that to God and you should give lavishly. Do not tip Jesus Christ. Do not tip the mission of Christ. 
you should give to underwrite a portion of the mission of Christ. Every family in this church ought to be saying, how can I own a piece of this ministry? How can I help partner with all the hundreds of Cornerstone people to underwrite the mission of Jesus Christ and own a part of this ministry? Mine, my family will take a piece of this and we'll underwrite it so that it goes forward. Malachi chapter 3 verse 8 is the classic uh, on this in the Old Testament when they got worship all messed up and, and, and the whole system of worship fell apart in the Old Testament. Near the end of the Old Testament, God wrote this through his prophet Malachi 3. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. Well, that's some harsh language, isn't it? But you say, God, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. That's where you have robbed me. You're cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse. Bring them to the God-appointed place and quit dispersing them across. Listen, (laughs) it's not that we don't have wealth. It's that we're mismanaging what God has put into our hands. That's what I want to try to say to you this morning. It's not that there's not enough. It's that we've mismanaged it. Bring the tithes into the storehouse. That's bring me meat in mine house, saith the Lord, and prove me in this. If I'll not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that there's not room enough to receive it. Will a man rob God? God's answer is, duh, you already have. When you haven't brought your offerings to the house of God and given them as an act of worship for the mission of God. And until our families have owned our part of the ministry, underwriting the mission of Christ and giving lavishly, we have to lay off giving to the NRA. And PETA and the Republican Party until the cause of Christ is fully funded. Can I get a witness anywhere in the room? I mean, I'm just asking you this morning, what really is important to you? And you know, I'm, I'm all in for politics, and I'm all in for the NRA, and I'm all in for a lot of good things. But they don't even come close to my worship to God on my priority list. That's what I'm saying to you. And until we get that right, listen to what I'm saying to you. Quit giving to missions if you're not tithing. Start tithing first. And then when you've got at least 10% going there, now kick in and start giving to missions above that. Whenever we take a special offering, people get... We could take a special offering right now. I've got a Mexican missionary. They're coming. They're on the way right now. They'll be at our house in a few hours. Spend the night with us tonight. We're discipling them. We're getting them ready to go back to Monterey. They're going to be with us this week. There's so many needs. If if we had to take up an offering right now, we raise $10,000 in the next 10 minutes. Just like that. Just like that. But then next week, our offering would be 10,000 lighter. Does that make sense? Because it's all coming out of the same pool of money in our households. And until we've got giving our worship offering right, let's don't go crazy with all this other stuff until we've got the basics. Let's learn to walk before we run. If our church struggles, and now it never should struggle, But if our church struggles, it's because we're having individual faith struggles. It's because we're having individual or family faith struggles and priorities about the matter of giving. We cannot fully worship until we give lavishly. So Abraham said, one-tenth of everything I give to you, the nine-tenths that remain, you guys just take that and go back to your homes. I don't want even a thread or a shoelace, Abraham said. Let God, though, be worshipped 
above all. Now, what is a high priest? Now we've come to the message. Now just bear with me. What is a high priest? In the Old Testament times, the high priest was a man appointed or ordained by God for the spiritual assistance of all the people that he served. He was approved by God to be the man who stood between the people and God, between humans and God. It was God's approved person to minister to the people all of the things, pertain, spiritual things, pertaining to God. Now let me show you Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. Every chief priest is chosen from humans to represent them in front of God, so he represents you to God, that is to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Let's pick up one of these versions over here. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. This is what a high priest does. He was a specialist in representing humanity to God. That was his job. He was a specialist in representing your needs to God and taking God's blessings and ministering them back to the people. His goal, his only goal, was to bring the people into a closer relationship with God. And so you say, okay, this priest thing sounds really awesome. I I think I need one of those. Okay, but let me caution you. Here's the problem with priests. There is a problem with high priests. Let me tell you what the problems are. Hebrews 5 verse 2. The chief priest can be gentle with people who are ignorant and easily deceived because he also has weakness. Lock on to that. Because he has weaknesses, he has to offer sacrifice for his own sins first and then in the same way for the people. Let's do the NIV over here. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant or going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. Now here's the problem with priests. Number one, they have their own weaknesses. Now that's a problem. The second problem is they have to deal with their own sins. So when you read about the priests in the Old Testament, the priest would first have to make a sacrifice for his own sins. And then he would have to come and make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. But he couldn't deal with the people's sins until he first dealt with his own personal weaknesses and his own personal sins. But it, it gets a little worse than that. The priest has to be approved by God. So not just anyone can stand and claim, I'm God's representative. You can say that, but that doesn't mean that God has approved you. Remember how I asked the question at the beginning, who has God approved and put into your life to connect you into a relationship with God? Hebrews 5 verse 4 says this, And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. What I mean is they have to be approved by God. You can't just assume this position. The other problem is priests are tribal. And I don't want to beat this horse to death because we're not necessarily tribal here in America. We're, it's maybe the one thing we've got a little bit beyond. But it says in, in, in Hebrews 7 verse 11, Now perfection, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, that means the tribe of Levi, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? They were tribal. They stayed tribal. Why do we need anything that's not tribal? For when there is a change of priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Verse 13, for the one of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe. Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. Look at verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from the tribe of Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about the priests. Now, 
priests are tribal. That's a problem with human priests. A priest represents humanity to God. A priest ministers spiritual things to the people. All kinds of people. So we need a priest who's not tribal. In this room we have all kinds of people. We have Texans and we have non-Texans. Let's just start there. Imagine if I said, well, I'm a native-born Texan and I'm here to minister to native-born Texans. How many of you would be left out if I said that? How many of you are not native-born Texans? Well, there's a, a third of the congregation. Sorry for you guys, by the way. A third of the congregation would be, be left out. And that's the problem. We need a non-tribal priest. See, Aaron is fine if you're a Jew. Jesus, God loves the Jews, but God loves the Gentiles also. So who's going to represent the Gentiles? And who's going to take the hands of the Gentiles and put their hands into the hands of God? Aaron's fine for the Jews, but what about the rest of us? So God sent His Son to die for the whole world. A high priest who is not tribal. Jesus is a priest who represents all of humanity. Let me give you one last problem with priests. Their service is temporary because they die. I mean, this is fairly obvious. Look at Hebrews 7, 23. There was a long succession of priests because when, no, because when a priest died, he could no longer serve. Does that make sense? When you bury the guy, he can no longer... Yeah, I mean, just look at these verses. Now, there have been many of those priests. Yeah, why? Why? Because death prevented them from continuing in office. A dead priest cannot serve us. A dead priest cannot do anything for us. For thousands of years, human priests served their generation and then they died. Another priest was raised up, served their generation, and then they died. They did the best they can, but, it, but it, the system was weak because men are weak. I mean, for two weeks I couldn't even preach. I could hardly get out of bed for my weakness. I mean, what if you needed some serious spiritual help in the last two weeks? And I was all you had, you'd be out of luck. I'd say, why? Because men are weak. And when men are weak, the system is, the system of priests was weak. It's all they had to work with, and that's all they had, so they just went with it until finally, in human history, God intervened into the affairs of men. And God said, enough of this, I'll just become a human myself. I'll fix the problem permanently for these people. So, here's my second big question for you this morning. Why did the Son of God become the Son of Man? Why did God become... I'm almost preaching Christmas here a little too early, aren't I? Why did the Son of God become the Son of Man? The answer is simple. Because we needed a better system. We needed a better sacrifice. We needed a better high priest. We needed a better person to bring our needs. We needed a better covenant. We needed a better minister. So God sent His Son to solve the problem. And when He came, Jesus died for all of us. Not just Jews. Not just Levites. But for all the people of the world. For God so loved the whole world that He gave His only begotten Son. Look at Hebrews 2. And verse number 9, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. That means he's made flesh like you and I. Went way down the totem pole of, of hierarchy and he was made like us, human flesh. But we see him crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Through God's kindness, he died on behalf of everyone. And every version says the same. Look at this. Look at the ESV. We see him 
who for a little while, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, He, Jesus, might taste death for every one of us. God became flesh to share our humanity, that by tasting death, He could break the power of death for every one of us and set us free. So, He died for us. The other thing is, He welcomes us into His family. Now, this is some of the best verses in all of Hebrews right here that I want to read to you. Not, does Jesus, not only does Jesus represent us all, he calls us brother and sister. This is God calling us brother and sister. Look at these verses, Hebrews 2.11. I'm going to read it from the NIV because it's beautifully written. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises, quoting Psalms. And again, I will put my trust in him. Again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Jesus came to be like us. So that by his death... He might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by fear of death. Gosh, just just a week ago, you and I were talking and you said, I no longer fear death. Well, what happened in your life? I'll tell you what happened. You received Christ as your Savior and he broke the fear of death that had held you in slavery for all of your life. You no longer have to fear that. Why? Because he's already conquered that. He's already shown us there is life after death. He's already shown us there's life beyond death. He's already shown us there's a whole chapter to our life, really the whole book. This is just the preface. This is just the introduction. The whole book of our life is still waiting to be lived on the other side. Look at verse 17. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, we often understand the deity of Christ, but what we don't get is the humanity of Christ. You hear what it said? Fully human in every way. I'll preach more about this next week, okay? If that's all right with you, about how Jesus is fully human. Say, why did the Son of God become the Son of Man? To be, to serve as our high priest. To make atonement for the sins of the people. In the Old Testament, remember the high priest would go in only once a year on the Day of Atonement. Having already made payment for his own sins, he would carry the blood of the Lamb in behind the veil into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it, uh, sprinkle it upon the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant where the presence of God rested there before him. And in that act, the high priest was making atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus was made human flesh like us in every way, that he might become a better high priest than the world had ever known. That would be our topic next week, but for today, let's conclude with this. Let's go back to our question. Who needs a high priest anyway? Let's just role play here for, for, for a moment. Imagine that you're going to stand before a judge because you've been accused of some very serious crimes. Now add to that picture the fact that in your heart you know you are guilty 
of those crimes. And you're going to court. You're going to stand before the judge. Now, you would be foolish to go into the courtroom and face the judge alone. You would be very reckless to speak directly to the judge who holds your life and your future in his hands. Think about the scene now. You would be very naive to think, I'll be acquitted if I go and plead my own case before the court. You'd be very naive to think you've got what it takes to go in there and get yourself acquitted before a judge on crimes you know you're guilty of. Now, just understand the question I'm asking you this morning. Who needs a high priest anyway? I do. I do. You see, for this reason Jesus came. Made like us, fully human in every way, that the guilty might find forgiveness. That we, who were very far from God, might be made like Unto the sons and daughters of God. Now this is how skillful Jesus is. Listen carefully. Jesus as our high priest, as our advocate, stands between God and us. Stands between us, accused of crimes for which we are guilty. Representing us to the holy judge of the universe. Jesus, here's how skillful he is. Jesus is telling the judge, your honor, sure... These people are guilty. <laughs> They're as guilty as sin. But here's the deal, Your Honor. Since you have already laid their punishment upon me, since you have already punished me for their crimes, the burden of the law has been fulfilled. So since I have already paid their debt, I'm admonishing, Your Honor, to acquit these people, not on the basis of their righteousness, but on the basis of my righteousness as their high priest. Your Honor, as long as we're in court, let's go one step further. I move that you, the judge, the God of the universe, not only forgive them, but that you adopt these forgiven people as your very own sons and daughters. I want them to be my brothers and sisters. So while we're in court and I'm pleading their case, not only am I asking for forgiveness and acquittal on the basis of my righteousness and my shed blood on the cross and my resurrection from the dead, but God, as long as we're standing in court, let's go ahead and draft papers for their adoption into your family. Now that's what Jesus is arguing. And because Jesus is the Son of God, and because Jesus always does those things that please the Father, and because the Father is so pleased with the Son, the Father says, Son, I mean, High Priest, let's do it. That uh, motion approved. You are forgiven and you are adopted into my family. So Jesus, you can call these people your brothers and your sisters. Who needs a High Priest like that? We do. Every one of us. 
needs a priest like that. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Listen, let's make a, let's make a few decisions this morning. We, we've covered a lot of ground from Genesis to, to the rapture now. I want you to be thinking in your heart, who needs a high priest anyway? I do. We do. Every one of us need a high priest like that. What I'm really asking is who needs a Jesus? We do. Guilty people who want forgiveness and want to be adopted in the family of God, those are the people who need Jesus. I guess the only logical follow-up is have you entered into a personal relationship with Jesus? When you're accused of a crime... You're going to make a phone call to an attorney, an advocate. And you have to enter into a relationship, an agreement, a contract, a financial agreement with that attorney to represent you in court. But you have to enter into a relationship of some type with that person. I know that you know there's a God. I know you believe there's a God. And that's not my question. My question is, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? It's a very different question. Have you said to your high priest, Lord Jesus, I understand more clearly than ever how you stand between me and God, taking my hand and putting my hand into the hand of God so that I have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's the way it works. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Who needs a high priest? You do. I do. Many years ago, I entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. My life has been so, so blessed. I want your life to be blessed in the same way. I want you to be forgiven. I want you to be proclaimed, acquitted, and righteous. And I want you to be adopted into the family of God as his sons and daughters. But the only way it's possible is if you'll say yes to Jesus. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I wonder if there's anyone in the room who'd lift a hand and say, Pastor, you're talking just to me right now. I need to receive Jesus as my Savior today. I need to receive Christ as my Savior today. If that's you, I want you to slip your hand. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out. I just want to pray for you right now. Pastor, I don't know that I have a personal relationship with Christ, but I want to receive him today. If that's you, I want you to pray just like this. Dear, dear God, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. And I believe, Jesus Christ, that you became a man lived a perfect life, died on the cross, was buried and rose again to be my Savior, to be my high priest. Thank you for making a sacrifice for my sins. The best way I know how, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Wash me and cleanse me and acquit me of all of my sins. I receive you, Jesus, into my heart and into my life as my Lord and my Savior and my High Priest. Thank you for adopting me into the family of God. 
Thank you for saving me this morning. Thank you for being my Savior today and blessing my life. In Jesus' name. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I want to ask the Christians a few questions. Who needs to make a decision this morning of commitment that says, I'm going to own a part of the ministry? The days of tipping are over. The days of giving and worshiping lavishly are before me. And I'm going to have to make some adjustments in my lifestyle. I'm going to have to make some adjustments in my priority system. But I'm willing to make those adjustments. How many of you need your families to be blessed like Abraham was blessed? Where the high priest would roll out and say, Blessed be you. For God has delivered you from your enemies and God has blessed your family. And blessed be God who has delivered you. Who wants the blessing of God upon their life? Who needs to get serious about the mission of making disciples? Who maybe needs to be a member of this church? Make a commitment. Say, I'm with the team. Together, we're going to make disciples till Christ returns. Whatever you need to do. Let me pray for you right now. Father, I'm praying just for your people right now. Lord, many decisions are happening right now in the hearts of your brothers and sisters. As you're speaking to their heart about what's next for them. Father, this morning, thank you for ministering your blessings to us through the word. Lord, as we prepare to go to our homes, Lord, we pray that the blessings of God would rest upon our lives, would fill our lives. And Lord, that you would not only bless us like you did Abraham, but you would make a blessing out of us. We would bless our families, our children, our our spouse, our co-workers, our neighborhood. God, we would just flow, overflow with your blessings to everyone around us. Who needs a high priest? God, us, right here in this room. We need the righteous high priest of Jesus Christ. And Christ, I don't know if we ever have even said it to you. But thank you. Thank you for standing between us and the Father. And pleading our case. And interceding for us. And making atonement for us. And bringing our needs to the Father. And pleading our case. And hearing our prayers. And asking for blessings upon our lives. And sending those blessings down to us. And giving us health. And giving us life. And giving us eternal life. And giving us a home in heaven. And giving us a family of God where we belong. We're never going to be outcasts. But we are sons and daughters of Almighty God. Lord, if we've never said thank you, then thank you this morning a million times over for all that you've done for your children this morning. We need you in our lives, and we're thankful to have you in our lives. Lord, this is our prayer as a family of God right here at Cornerstone this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.